Good evening, Church. <clears throat> uh, tonight's Bible reading is taken from Romans chapter 7, from verses 1 to 12. That's Romans chapter 7, from verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him, who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may, be, we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, know, for I would not have known what, is, what it is to covet if the law had not been said. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me, all kinds of covet, covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's lovely to see you all here this evening again. If you are new to our church, my name is Martin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church Madrand, and we are delighted that you've joined us this evening as we come to God's Word. All right, we're having a look at uh, Romans 6 and 7. Last week, we worked through chapter 6, and um, I hope you survived that. This evening, we're looking at chapter 7, verse 1 to 12, and then next week, I'll be looking at verse 13 to verse 25. So it's three weeks in Romans chapter 6 and 7. If you are new here this evening, we've been working our way through this letter. It's a letter of Paul. He's writing to the Christians, the Christian church in Rome, uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And we are learning from his letter and his writing what it means to be a Christian. And in particular, the Christian and sin. So if you missed last week, uh, do uh, look it up on the website, and you can catch up. And then uh, this evening we're looking at chapter 7, verse 1 to 12. If we have time at the end, um, Kate will shake her head, but if we have time at the end, I'm most happy to pick up any questions, one or two questions, uh, before we close.
Let me pray and let me just encourage you. I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. We have to do some hard work. I hope you've got your thinking caps on. I hope you've got your seatbelt on because we've got to do some work in the text to understand and to learn and to grow and to feed on God's word. And it really will help me a great deal if you have your Bibles open in front of you. But let me first pray. Father, we do want to echo the words of that song that, Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. And, Father, we are so aware of our own weakness, our own sinfulness, and our own need of you. And we do pray, Lord, that you will help us to remember that we need you. Forgive us when we forget that we need you. And now we pray, Lord, as we come to your word that we may need you and that we may hear your voice as we study your word. So will you help us by your spirit, for Christ's sake. Amen. Much of our world, and uh, very sadly much of churchianity, believes in the law strategy to change lives. It's quite simple, the law strategy. Take our country, our parliament makes laws, hundreds of laws, thousands of laws, and the idea is that if you break the law, if you do bad things, you'll be punished, and if you do good things, you'll be rewarded. It's the idea that we cannot organize society without there being rules and regulations. Remember your school days, how there were rules and regulations. I remember when I was at school, I was a teenager, and uh, I went to Mount Pleasant High in what was then called Salisbury, Rhodesia. That's how old I am. Uh, Cecil John Rhodes and I went to the same school. And we had a headmaster who was a real disciplinarian, Mr. Lambert. And uh, he had lots of rules and regulations, and he ran a very tight ship at the school. You didn't get away with anything. And one of the problems that had, had arisen was that in those days, everyone went to school on a bicycle. That's before the steam train. And um, everyone went to school on a bicycle, and after school, we would often ride four, five, six abreast on the road, and that, of course, was against the law. And Mr. Lambert kept warning us that when you go home, you can only have two abreast, because otherwise cars can't, can't get by. And uh, one Friday afternoon, school was over, I was, I was going on, on my bicycle back home. There was a whole group of us right across the road, and I was somewhere in the middle, and suddenly a car came, and the driver was very, very irritated. He stopped, he got out of, out of his car, Everyone else managed to get away except me. And he grabbed me. He said, what's your name? I'm going to report you to the principal Friday afternoon. So Monday morning comes. And Mr. Lambert, we have assembly. Uh, We sing a hymn. We say a prayer. Mr. Lambert, I think he had four prayers that he kind of circulated. And uh, we sang a hymn. We prayed a prayer. There was notices. And then he always told us who he wanted to see straight after assembly. He had a list. And you always knew that the likelihood is that if your name was called, you were going to get beaten. Those were in the days when you were still beaten at school. 
and I would still be at school if I hadn't been beaten, by the way. And uh, anyway, so the end of the assembly, he, he lists the names, and he lists, of course, Morrison. And then you go and line up outside. I see some of the guys smiling, because you know what I'm talking about. So you line up outside the, the principal's office. You're all looking very miserable, dejected, because you know what lies ahead of you. I get into Mr. Lambert's office, and Mr. Lambert says, Morrison, you have a choice. I can either report you to the police, or you can get six of the best. Please, please, sir, six of the best. So then you bend down, he takes the cane, he gives you six of the best, and it was the best. And um, then afterwards, you're supposed to look at him and say, thank you, sir. And then always, so you stand up, you say, thank you, sir, and you are in... Your fire, the fire, and that was fire, fire. And then you run off to the bathroom where there's a mirror and you have a look at the damage. So, okay, that is the law strategy. It's quite simple. You motivate people, you change people by making laws. If they break the law, they are punished. If they keep the law, they are rewarded. Very sadly, much of churchianity is like that. People think of God like a headmaster with a rule book and a cane and a pointing finger. Obey these laws, keep these rules, and God will perhaps have mercy on you. So you need to be baptized, you need to be confirmed, you need to go to church every week, you need to read your Bible, you need to say your prayers, you need to go to communion, you need to obey the Ten Commandments, you need to obey your parents, and you need to be nice to the pastor. Even David. That is the law strategy in the church. And I'm convinced that most South Africans think of Christianity like that. Be good and God will reward you. God helps those who help themselves. If you're good enough, you will earn God's grace, even though grace is a gift. No, our thinking, our South African church thinking, is that if you're good enough, you will earn God's grace. Friday afternoon, I saw Achi. And Achi had two blue stars on his forehead. He ran up to me, he came, he clutched my legs. I said, where did you get those stars? He said, so I said, why did you have those stars? He said, I ate all my food. He's at aftercare. So Achi got the eat all your food award. That's what he got. That is the law strategy. It's the stick and carrot approach. Yes? It's Mr. Lambert and his rule book and his finger and he's saying, be good or else. Now, let me give you a heads up on chapter 7. If that is your view of Christianity, be good or else, then you are wrong. You are dead wrong. It doesn't matter how long you have believed that, and your family have believed that. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. You have been conned. You've been conned. That is not the gospel. That is not the Christian faith. Even if your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather have believed that for years and years and years, they have totally, God bless them, they have totally misunderstood the gospel. They are belonging to the flat earth society. It is not the gospel at all. It's not the gospel of Paul. It's not the gospel of Jesus. No, the message of chapter 7, verse 1 to 12, is that the Christian is not energized or motivated by law. The Christian is energized and motivated by love. 
That's what chapter 7 is telling us. We are energized by Christ loving us so much that he died for us. Christ loving us so much that he placed his Holy Spirit within us so that we want to love him. So that we want to obey him. So that we want to live by his law. The basis is not law. The basis is love. So the main theme of this section is you have been freed from the deadly marriage to law. That's what we're going to have a look at. Four points. We're going to unpack verse 1 to 6 and make some reference to verse 7 to 12 as we go. But the main section is verse 1 to 6. And if you're wanting to become a preacher or teacher, you cannot find a better model of a sermon than in verse 1 to 6. So have a look. Verse 1 makes the point. Verse 2 two to 3 illustrates the point. Verse 4 explains the point. And then verse 5 and 6 applies the point. So that's a, good, that's a good model for any young preacher or any old preacher. There's a wonderful sermon model. So let's have a look at that under four points. First of all, the point. You still with me there? Yes? Amen? You can say amen. Amen. Thank you, David. The point, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul assumes that he's speaking to people who know the law. The Jews had the law of Moses. The Romans had Roman law. And quite obviously, Paul is saying, when you die, all your legal obligations and contracts, when you die, they end immediately. We all know that, he says. Here in South Africa, we have Roman Dutch law. There are sanctions, there are punishments, but when you die, the rules, the sanctions, the punishments no longer apply. So think about it. You may still owe 10,000 rand on your iPhone. When you die, it's gone. (laughs) You may owe 100,000 rand with West Bank on your motor car. When you die, it's gone. You may have a student loan of who knows how many hundred thousand rand with APSA. When you die, wonderful, it is gone. The only problem is you need to die. (laughs) So that's point one. The law is only binding as long as you live. When you die, it's gone. Point number two, the illustration. Verse two and three. So Paul now illustrates a good sermon. He illustrates his point. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, because of my job, I have been to hundreds of weddings. Most of them have been a joy. Only one of them was mine. (laughs) Listen to the vows. Listen to the vows. Yeah, we have Prince and Swani. They made their vows three weeks ago. 
Yes, three weeks ago yesterday. These were the vows. These were the vows. If David got it right. David, I hope you got it. These are the vows they made. Let's take 20. I, 20, take you, prince, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and obey till death parts us, according to God's holy law, and this is my solemn vow. There it is, till death parts us. Well, of course, have a look at verse 3. Take Jean and myself. I'm married to Jean. She made those vows. I made those vows. If I'm still alive and Jean sleeps with another man, well, she's, she's an adulteress. So she hasn't done that, and I, I haven't done that. But if I'm dead, she's totally free to remarry. The vows she made to me are no longer valid because I've died. And hopefully she's not the cause. <laughs> We've actually had a conversation about if one of us dies, can the other remarry? And we both agreed, of course, you can remarry. It's kind of a compliment to your first marriage. Your marriage was great, and so one of you dies, so you want to marry again. The only kind of difference we had was... What is the time period you should wait between the death and the remarriage? And the one time we had this conversation, P.W. Boerter's wife had died. Her name was Elise. He was one of the last apartheid presidents. And he was 80 years old, and his wife Elise died. And six months later, the newspaper said that he was seeing some other lady in Hrafrenet. And my wife said, that's terrible. Elise, her body is still warm in the grave, and he's already looking at another man. And I said, sweetheart, he's not thinking of sex. He's 80 years old. A man of his age and his generation doesn't know how to make tea. That's why he needs to get remarried. So, have a look. Forget P.W. <laughs> look at again verse 2. When a husband... When a husband is alive, she is bound, his wife is bound by law, by a contract. In our country, by the Marriage Act. You are bound. It's a legal contract. Prince, 20, it's a legal contract. But when he dies, she is totally released from that contract. She is released. Verse 2 says released. Verse 3 says she's free. So it's quite a strong verb, meaning destroyed and nulled, meaning the woman's status as a wife has been abolished. It's been completely done away with, and she is no longer a wife. She is legally free to marry another man. So there's a strong contrast here in verse 2 and 3. The law binds her to her husband. But his death frees her from the law. All right, so there we have the point. We have the the illustration. Verse 4 is the explanation. Let me read verse 4. Likewise, so Paul is saying just like in a marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. 
through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So what does Paul do now? He explains the marriage illustration. Just as a wife has no legal obligation to her wedding vows, to her marriage contract, when her husband dies, in the same way, says Paul, we have died, you were married to the law, you have now died to the law, which now has no hold on you. You are released from any obligation to the law. But wait a minute, you say. If I look around here this evening, everyone seems pretty much alive. Well, most of you. Some of you are half asleep. But in a sense, we would love to be dead to the law because the law still sometimes makes us feel guilty. We still sometimes feel if I disobey it, I will be condemned. Well, of course, we haven't died. But Jesus has which is what he tells us there in verse 4. We have been united to Jesus in faith, and therefore the law no longer binds us. It has no hold on us. It no longer condemns us. So for the Jewish Christian, that meant, at the time of Paul, I no longer have to obey the food laws. I can have bacon and ribs Tomorrow, I no longer have to obey the Sabbath laws. I no longer have to obey the circumcision laws. I no longer have to obey the Passover laws. We as Gentile Christians, the law has no authority to condemn us. The law has no power to motivate us. The law is unable to change us. We free from the law, from Christian moralism, from the pastor who holds a cane and a rule book, says do this or do that. We're free from that. The law's died. Question is, how did that happen? Well, notice again, verse 4, through the body of Christ, in both his life and his death. So in his life, Jesus, Jesus fully kept the law. He never broke, broke a single law. He lived a perfect life. Jesus didn't need to die for his own lawlessness because he perfectly obeyed the law. So two things. Jesus met all the demands and the requirements of the law in his life. Secondly, Jesus met all the demands for punishment and sanction for our lawlessness in his death. So we broke the law and Jesus took the punishment. So living the Christian life is not a matter of trying to obey the law. That's not living the Christian life. Living the Christian life is not me having to pay with good works for my bad works. No, living the Christian life is a life of faith. It's faith in the physical, bodily life of Jesus. He kept all the commands of God. It's faith in the physical, bodily death of Jesus, that he paid the penalty for all my sins. It's faith in the body of Christ. Many years ago, there was a movie called The Last Emperor. 
And it was a movie about the last emperor of China. And the last emperor of China was a young boy. And he had, he lived in luxury. He had hundreds of servants. He was, he was uh, pampered. Everyone was at his beck and call. And one day his brother said to him, what happens when you do wrong? And the young emperor said, if I do wrong, one of the slaves get punished. And to prove it, to illustrate it, he knocked over this precious Chinese porcelain jar and it shattered into a million pieces. And immediately they took, they took a slave outside and beat him. Jesus has done the opposite. The slave has sinned. And they take the king and beat him. So if you were to stand before God, imagine, I don't wish anyone to die, but imagine if you died this evening and you stood before God tonight. It can happen. And God said, Martin, you can only enter heaven if you have perfectly obeyed my law 100%. I'm standing there on my own. Gene isn't there. And I'd say, well, Lord, I certainly didn't get that right, but, but I'm with him. He obeyed the law. And then God says, Martin, you can only get to heaven if all your sins have been punished, every single one of them. And I'd say, well, I'm not so keen on that, but I'm with him. He paid the price. So verse 4, we have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You no longer marry to the law. You are married to another called Jesus. So interesting, it doesn't come out so clearly in the English, but in the, in the original, there's a repeated word in verse 2, 3, and 4, the word joined. So follow me, verse 2, for a married woman who is joined to her husband. Verse 3, an adulteress who is joined to another man. Verse 4, so that you may be joined to another, meaning Christ, the same word. Meaning, before Christ, you were joined. You were married to the law. You were motivated by the law. You had to obey the law. But now that you are in Christ, the law has died. You have no legal obligation to the law. You are now married to Christ. It's a picture of marriage, verse 4. Just as a wife has no legal obligation to her husband if he's dead, so we have no legal obligation to the law if it's dead. Just as the wife of a dead husband can remarry, so we can marry Christ if the law is dead. So I'm no longer married to the law. It's not the law that motivates me. It's not the law that energizes me. No, I'm married to Christ. And I'm energized by our relationship, by love. All right, let's have a look at the application of the point. We looked at the point, the illustration, the explanation. You still with me there? Yes? Amen? Hallelujah? Good. Verse 5 and 6. Application of the point. 
Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written law code. So Paul says, let me apply it by holding up two marriages. Verse 5, the marriage state of a non-Christian. And then verse 6, we have a look at the marriage state of a Christian. So verse 5, here is the marriage state of a non-Christian being married to the law. And being married to the law means, verse 5, you are still living in the flesh. You are still living with sinful passions. You are living in the flesh and sinful passions bearing fruit for death. In fact, chapter 6, verse 21 talks about those sinful passions and says you are now ashamed of them. Isn't that right? When you did them, you thought it was very exciting, and now you look back and you're ashamed. That's what happens when you are married to the law in a non-Christian state. So what does it mean to be married to the law? Three things, one good and two bad. What does the law, what does it mean to be married to the law? One good thing and two bad things. Let's have a look at the good thing. It exposes sin. It spotlights sin. So have a look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known, I would not have known what it is to cover if covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse twelve So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law acts in one way, in a good way. Paul said, without the law, I didn't realize that my thoughts were sinful. I thought it was just my deeds and my words. But when I read the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, I realized for the first time, it's not just my words, it's not just my deeds, it's my thoughts. So sin is not just killing a person with my hands. It is also hatred and rage and revenge in my mind. Sin is not only committing adultery or having physical sex outside of marriage. It's undressing a woman in your mind. So the law is good and righteous in this one way. When you read it, when you understand it, it suddenly exposes your sin. It's a bit like a mirror. You know what it's like all day, you haven't looked at yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror and you find that you've had a piece of spinach in your teeth. It exposes, you feel so embarrassed. Or it's like a torch or a light. So you're in your kitchen and you've just knocked the fork uh, off the counter behind the fridge. So you take, your, you take your phone, you put on the torch, you look behind the fridge, you haven't looked there for a long time, and there's your fork, and there's some spiders and cockroaches, and there's some cabbage and pumpkin of three months old and some pup of six months old. It's quite disgusting, isn't it? That's what the law does. 
You read the law and it exposes your sin. Paul says, I never knew sin was more than actions, but now I know. But the law does two bad things if you're a non-Christian. Verse 5, what does the law do? It arouses sin. Sin is aroused by the law. Verse 9, when the commandment came, sin came alive. Verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. So it's not only, the law is not only like a mirror and a torch. The law is like an energy drink. The law arouses sin. It energizes sin. It motivates sin. Perhaps you didn't know that. But if you're a non-Christian, when you see the law, it almost immediately energizes you to break it. So imagine tomorrow morning, you go to your office, you go to work, and you get an email. It's from the CEO of your company. It's to the management committee, and you are not on the management committee. And it says, strictly confidential. What are you going to do? Delete it? No, you're first going to read it. You see what the law does? It arouses sin. You're at the office, and this one door suddenly has a sign. And the sign says, strictly private, no entry under any circumstances. You have walked past that door for years. It has never occurred to you to open that door. When it says, strictly private, no entry under any circumstances, you think to yourself, why don't I just have a peep? Isn't that what it is? Years ago, we used to have an evangelist called Chapo from Australia who used to visit us and preach and teach and do evangelism. And he, he told the story. He was on a train in Sydney, and uh, he looked up, and there was a sign on the train which says, do not spit on the train. And he thought to himself, it's never crossed my mind to spit on the train, but suddenly my mouth is salivating. <laughs> So sin does that when you're a non-Christian, especially when you're a non-Christian. It energizes, it awakens your sinful nature. The second bad thing that the Lord does is it leads to death. Notice again verse 4. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 9. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10. Same thing. Verse 11, it killed me. So sin not only causes us to be ashamed, but it kills us emotionally, physically, eternally. So emotionally, let's take emotionally. You go to church every Sunday, and they are teaching Christian moralism. They are teaching the law strategy. Be good. Don't sin. Keep the Ten Commandments, pray, tithe, read your Bible. What does it do? It makes you feel miserable, doesn't it? Makes you feel guilty, makes you feel like a failure. I'm so rotten, I'm so wretched, I'm a loser. Every Sunday, the more the law demands, the more terrible you feel. So I might as well just enjoy it. Because I can't keep this law. It just makes me miserable. And, of course, it leads to physical death and spiritual death. Law and sin is a killer. As I said last week, it's the greatest weapon of mass destruction. 
sin and the law. That's the marriage state of a non-Christian when you marry to law and sin. And it's a lousy marriage. It doesn't end well. But there's another, a second state of marriage, verse 6. Here's the marriage state of a Christian. You marry to Christ. The law has died in Christ. You no longer need to be married to, to the law and sin. You are now married to Christ. You remember last week. Let me take a step back. We think that we are free. We are autonomous. We can do as we like. I'm born free. I can live as I like. I can do as I like. I'm free to be myself. Well, of course, you are free to be yourself. The problem is we are all born in sin. We have a bondage to sin. We are married to sin. Remember last week, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. In the same way, this week, chapter 7, Paul says, you're all married. None of us are single here this evening. None of us. You either marry to the law and sin or you marry to Christ. It's one or the other. If you marry to the law, it's a legalism. It's a moralism. It is deadly. It is depressing. It is miserable. You say, well, let me just throw the whole thing out and just do as I like. It's different if you marry to Christ. So, just like Prince and Tuani, I got married 35 years ago, and we're still together. My wife is a saint. <laughs> and uh, On our wedding day, we were thinking, I hope my wife was thinking this, but I was thinking this. How can I love her? How can I please her? How can I serve her? That's what I was thinking. We want to please and serve each other. I'm not motivated in my love for my wife by the seventh commandment, which says do not commit adultery. I know that is there. I know it is true. But I'm not motivated by that. No, I'm motivated because I love her. And I don't want to hurt her. Imagine, imagine if I slept with someone else, what that would do to her. So I'm not motivated by the seventh commandment. It is true. It is right. But it doesn't motivate me. I'm motivated because I want to please her. I want to love her. That's what Paul is saying. We're not motivated by the law. No, we're motivated by love. Christ has loved us and died for us and placed his spirit in us. And so we want to please him. It's not that we have to please him. No, we want to please him. And it grieves us when we don't. So the sign of a real Christian isn't that you're perfect. No, the sign of a real Christian is that when we sin, we, we feel grieved. It pains us. Because we know we've pained the Lord. Let me close with three points. Number one, Paul gives us here two views of Christianity, and we really need to hear this in South Africa. The first view of Christianity is from the school assembly with Mr. Lambert. 
That's the first view of Christianity. It's the rule book. It's the cane. It's demanding that we keep his rules or else, or six of the best. That's the one view of Christianity. And if you think Christianity is like that, no wonder you think that Christianity is a miserable, wretched religion. Because it is. No wonder you want to confine it to one hour per week and no more. No wonder some of your family and friends have discarded Christianity because that's what they think of Christianity, and they are right. It's miserable. Nietzsche called Christianity the hangman religion. Makes you feel guilty, it makes you feel miserable, and he's right. If this is Christianity, I would also leave it. It's Mr. Lambert and his cane and his rule book, And if that is Christianity, I agree with Nietzsche, the hangman religion. I want nothing of it. Second view of Christianity is marriage to Christ. If Jesus sought me out, he sought me out. I didn't seek him out. He sought me out. When I was a sinner, when I was guilty, when I was evil in my head, when I was an enemy, he wooed me. He courted me as a teenager. When I was full of sin and self-righteousness and self-centeredness and religion, he washed me, he cleansed me. He put a new marriage wedding garment on me. He took off all the rubbish, all the rags. And he married me. Well, my dear friends, if that is the Christian faith, I want to serve Jesus. It's not because I have to. No, no, I want to. (laughs) He's done this for me. Of course I want to serve him. I want to love him. I want to please him. I want to obey him. It's a privilege. Second point. Paul gives us two prayers you could pray. If you're married to the Lord, this is probably how you would pray. Lord, have mercy on me because I'm such a failure. I'm a fraud. There's really no hope for me. I will never be good and I will never be good enough. In fact, Lord, this whole thing just makes me miserable and guilty. I might as well just give it all up and get drunk with the boys and girls tonight. Or you could pray the prayer of a Christian married to Jesus. Say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving someone like me. Thank you for loving someone like me. Sometimes I don't even love myself. And you love me. And when I fall and fail, Lord, thank you that you you long that I come back to you. You long that I confess and I get washed and cleansed. Thank you for putting your spirit in me. Thank you for giving me this desire, this longing to want to serve you and live for you. Thank you for the joy, the peace that I have. Two prayers. Which prayer are you praying? Which is your prayer? It depends who you marry to. Law and sin or Christ? Lastly, When you are faced with temptation to sin, and we are, 
and we fall and we fail. And we'll pick that up again next week, so don't miss that next week. We as Christians fall and fail. And if you think Christians don't, well, you haven't been taught well. We do fall and fail. But when you are faced with temptation, when you are faced with your besetting sin, and we all have some particular area in our lives that we really struggle with more than some other area, and it will be different to different people, but we all have it. If you don't think you have it, you're not awake. What do you do? Well, I think you go to verse 4. When that besetting sin comes, when that thought comes, get off your chair, get out of bed, walk around, and talk to the law. Talk to sin. And say, I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to obey you anymore. I don't have to live like that anymore. I don't have to be like that anymore. You are no longer my master. Get out of here. Go to hell. It's the only one you can tell to go to hell, by the way. I don't have to live like that anymore. I don't want to give up the peace and joy I have when I walk with the Lord. You need to talk to sin. You need to lecture sin. You need to talk to the Lord. You need to tell the Lord sin. I have a new partner. The old partner sucks. I have a new partner who loves me, who washed me, who cleansed me, who fills me with joy. Get out of here. I'm going to love the new partner. That's what you and I need to say. All right, let's stop there. We'll pick up chapter 7 from verse 13 to verse 25. Have a look at that before next Sunday. It's a quite remarkable section. So do have a look at that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that your word explains how we feel. Your word honestly unpacks our emotions, our feelings when it comes to sin. Thank you, Lord, that you have freed us from the law and from sin. And Lord, even though we from time to time f- stumble and fall, we thank you that you long for us to come back to you and to find that washing, that cleansing, that forgiveness once again. And even tonight, Lord, there's some of us who feel enormously burdened and guilty and guilt-ridden. And some of the things we've done and said and thought have been so horrible. Father, thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. And so will you wash us and cleanse us anew and afresh. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.